This show is sponsored by the Pragmatic Studio. The Pragmatic Studio has been teaching iOS development since November of 2008. They have a four-day hands-on course where you learn all the tools, APIs, and techniques to build iOS apps with confidence and understand how all the pieces fit together. They have two courses coming up. The first one's in July from the 22nd to the 25th in Reston, Virginia, and you can get early registration up through June 21st. You can also sign up for their August course, and that's August 26th through the 29th in Denver, Colorado, and you can get early registration through July 26th. If you want a private course for teams of five developers or more, you can also sign up on their website at pragmaticstudio.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Hello, hello from San Francisco. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Andrew Manson. Hi from Salt Lake City. Raj Schmidt. Hello, hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Brandon Alexander. Hello, I'm coming from Atlanta, Georgia. So, since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to give us a brief introduction? Let us know who you are. Well, I'm currently a iOS and hopefully Mac developer for uh, Black Pixel. I do a lot of the client development uh, work and test as much as I can a lot of our products. And I'm also an author, a uh, conference speaker, and I've also done a training video through Pearson. Nice. Sounds like fun. Uh, what book did you write? I'm curious. Oh, the, the book I wrote is called Pro iOS 5 Tools. Uh, so it's, it's a couple of versions of iOS old, but the techniques in the book are still completely valid today. Very nice. All right. Well, we'll, we'll tell people to go check it out. We brought you on the show to talk about, uh, performance tuning for your iOS app. I, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about what? A resource constrained environment? Is it about the user's experience, or are there other concerns as well that we're, we're trying to optimize for? Well, ultimately, it's about the user experience. If you, if you try to implement something and the user doesn't have a good experience with it, or it does something weird with the phone, like affect battery life, you might want to rethink that feature or rethink the assumptions of your application. That makes sense. So, so what kind of things do you recommend to people that they start with? Well, uh, performance tuning is, is actually a very scientific process. So if you think about the scientific method, you, you come up with a hypothesis. So in terms of an application, you, you notice that, say, scrolling, a scrolling table view or a collection view is, is rather sluggish. So you figure out what it could be. So you measure, make some measurements beforehand. In terms of scrolling performance, it's usually frames per second. Uh, it could be memory related. So you look at how much memory your application's using, using the various instruments available. And then you make a tweak to your code. So you make the modification. So you basically go from your hypothesis of, okay, I think I'm using a ton of transparent views in my table view or collection view. So I go through, I make them not transparent and change the way I render, render everything on screen. Then I test again. And then I look at my two pieces of data. If I improve by X percent, uh, that percentage is really up to you. Or if you're trying to hit a certain frames per second mark, and in most cases it's 60 frames a second. If you hit that, then, then you're good to go. If you didn't, uh, rethink your hypothesis, rethink your, your approach, and, and go again. 
I really like that way of thinking about it. I think it's it's um, it's super good because it's otherwise you you end up kind of thrashing around and kind of making guesses, and then you don't actually know if you're improving things or not. And having a little bit of rigor to this kind of stuff probably really helps um, keep keep focused on on the goal rather than just spending a day fussing around with scroll views or whatever. Exactly. So um, I, I guess I have a question around around that the, the kind of the scientific method thing. One of the challenges is kind of reproducibility of experiments, if we're going to kind of keep with that metaphor. So, you know, you you, you measure something with the scroll view, uh, you know, you notice the, the frames per second are off on your scroll view or whatever, and then you make some change, but then when you retest, you need to make sure you're kind of um, testing the same way. Have you got any thoughts on, on good ways to do that or pitfalls to avoid on that? Yes, so so a, a good example of something that, that may affect scroll performance could be Say you're scrolling and, and all of a sudden something in the background kicks off a, a network request and then it starts parsing a, pun, a bunch of JSON or XML. If that's happening in the background while you're scrolling, your performance could be impacted. So really when, when it comes to, to test, testing these types of things, you need to make sure that you're controlling your, your environment. So the thing you're testing, the thing you're changing is really the thing that you're, you're looking for. So in the case of parsing happening in the background, making sure that, that all of the data has been parsed and is ready to go and then perform your test, that would be a good example or a good thing to do. If your application refreshes data every 60 to 120 seconds, bump that up a little bit. So when you're testing the actual scroll performance, so if talking about graphics rendering, you want to test specifically for graphics rendering. If you think maybe you're parsing your, your parsing code is impacting your scroll performance, for example, test your parsing code. So it's really just a matter of honing in on one particular component of your application, knowing that everything everything is going to impact performance, but hone in on one specific aspect of it and make it as good as possible. And with all of those changes and tweaks happening throughout your application, it's going to make performance a lot better. And I focus on scroll performance because that's, probably the number one thing that we can do as developers to make the application easier to use. Because a a user has an expectation of, I move my finger and the content moves with it, compared to other platforms where you can have a little bit of lag and the user is a little more forgiving because that's something they're used to on that platform. But with iOS, when you move your finger, the content better move. Yeah, and the uh, I guess the freedom you have to make it slow is not that much because it even just a few milliseconds is going to mean the the frames per second drop down, right? Whereas if a if a page takes like a few more milliseconds to load, no one really notices. But if a if a table if five table view cells each take five milliseconds longer to to refresh, then you're gonna you're gonna feel that in a very uh, I don't know like a very human way, I suppose, because it's gonna feel not smooth. Yeah, definitely. And we also need to remember that we have, I think, 15 or 16 milliseconds to render everything. So when, when your code when your code's executing in, in the run loop, when you're wanting to render something, you have to have your code running in like 10 milliseconds and then let the rendering code have that extra 6 milliseconds to actually render and composite to the screen. So how do you measure this? How do you measure the, the frame rate or whatever? So with the iOS development tool chain or toolkit, we have uh, Xcode and we have instruments. Uh, with instruments, 
we can use the core animation instrument and connect it either to uh, the simulator, which is not really a good test for device performance, but it's a pretty good test for memory. Uh, memory performance, like finding leaks and other things. But I'm getting a little off topic of the, the scroll performance. But when we're talking about scroll performance, you hook up your device to instruments, select the core animation instrument, and start scrolling around, and it'll show you how many frames per second is being rendered by the, the graphics system. Uh, there are also several other things you can do. You can uh, have it color-blended layers. So as your view hierarchy is built, uh, the more transparency you use, the redder certain pieces will get. So you want to try to have your application be as little red as possible for highly scrolled views. If it's something static, uh, you can kind of fudge that a little bit. But when you're scrolling things, you don't want a lot of transparency because when the compositor composites down to a flat uh, raster image, it's actually going to pass over all of those UI elements that are, that are transparent that many times. So say you have three views stacked on top of each other and they are all transparent, they're all going to get rendered, and they're all going to have a pass done over them, even though they are 100% transparent. Can you talk a little bit on, um, I think this is kind of related, but the, the whole kind of CPU versus GPU thing, like detecting when stuff's going to be rendered by the graphics processor versus the, the main processor? That is a good question, and to be honest, I'm not as familiar with how those things work. How, how some code goes to the GPU versus how some code goes to the CPU. I know doing some things like setting a transform on, on a layer will bypass the CPU and go to the GPU. But some of those things are, are uh, to me, they're, they're hidden because I don't necessarily have to worry about those things specifically. I'm not, I'm not a game developer, so right. I can kind of rely on the, on the CPU, GPU kind of doing their things as appropriate. And knowing when it goes to the GPU would be nice, but I haven't had the need to to know that at this point. But uh, that that's a really good question. I'd love to I'd love to do some research and, and be able to answer that in the future. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not I'm definitely not an expert on this, and I I have this kind of vague memory of one of the colors. <laughs> I remember when I was doing some performance tuning on it was you know like scroll um, optimization. One of the colors, the reason it was a bad color in the, you know, when you turn on the, the, the coloring in instruments was because it meant that that view had to go, um, through the CPU to get to the CPU, the main CPU had to do some work to, to render that view. And the CPU is super duper slow compared to the GPU because the GPU is super duper optimized to, to do stuff with pixels. And, uh, and the CPU obviously is a general purpose. Okay. Thing. Are you, are you referring to the, off-screen rendered. Ah, uh, uh, yes, that might be that might be what it is. So, so what that does is that that thing colors everything yellow, everything that's rendered off-screen by the CPU. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking of. So, so doing things like uh, the corner radius, uh, and then I'm not sure if scaling does it, but I know I know setting the corner radius on a layer will force that layer to be rendered off-screen. So there are other techniques for doing corner radiuses. You can actually go in to see an iOS six. If you go into the stocks app that ships with iOS and connect your connection device to instruments and turn on color off screen rendered images, 
you can actually see where on some of the some of the table views that are that have corner radiuses set there's actually a very very small image that they use so that small image is is being rendered off screen instead of the whole view itself interesting so so running running some of these tools with with instruments and then launching other applications it will actually show you how the other developers are are doing this so learning from apple in the case of the stocks app is is a great thing to look at I remember that was a when I first started using instruments on the device, I was kind of shocked that you can actually just run instruments against anyone's any app that's installed on your phone. So you can like install, you can run instruments on the Facebook app and get it to uh, color the, you know, you can see how good they are at doing off-screen rendering and um, lining up their pixels and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you have to know kind of these uh, areas where uh, performance is impacted. Are there any tools that'll just tell you you have a performance problem somewhere, or do you have to be looking for these kinds of things? In my experience, you have to look for them. A lot of times, things are pretty pretty apparent. So, uh, well, the one I mean, the one thing I the the one obvious one that that we haven't just I guess it's kind of like it feels obvious enough that maybe we didn't even think to talk about it is the 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 frames per second instrument. So, or in instruments, you can just have. You run the app and it tells you how what the frame per seconds frames per second are uh, as you're playing with the application and you just you can literally just launch instruments toodle around in your application and scroll some things and move around and and just kind of wander around your application and then watch that graph and you'll see very clearly when it drops um, drops below even if you can't totally sense it in like playing with the the application you can see it in a graph so that that's one that's like normally my the first thing I would go to to if I want to just kind of do a survey of a, of the app and and see where where potential kind of problem areas are. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I do uh, when I'm doing any type of performance tuning uh, when it comes to scrolling uh, is I use the time profiler. So if if I know that that I'm doing a lot of resource intensive processing while while scrolling or doing a specific animation, I will fire up the time profiler. And it will show me what parts of my application are running more often. So a, a good example that, that I have in my book is, is I use the Fibonacci sequence. So when, when you're calculating the Fibonacci sequence, it's the each term is the sum of the previous two terms, with the first two terms being 0 and 1. So there's, there's two ways to implement it. There's, the first way is, is recursive. That's the definition of it. So I implement it recursively, and then I put each number in a simple table view. So just set the text label as whatever the term is. And as you're scrolling, when you get to a higher term, you start seeing scroll performance suffer a lot. So when you, when you look at it in the time profiler, you will see that your, your Fibonacci method is running all the time. So it, it could take up to like 100% of the CPU. And then a simple switch from a recursive implementation to an iterative implementation changes the performance such that when you run it again, you don't have any scroll issues. So that that's another way to to look at your application. So if you're doing a lot of data crunching while the user's scrolling while you're building a cell, uh, you might want to look and possibly pre-compute or cache a lot of data for those cells, if that makes sense. So Time Profiler will will really help you figure out any any place uh, performance is CPU bound. You can figure out what the CPU is doing that's mm-hmm. taking up all the time. 
Yes. Uh, and I, I find it quite helpful for, for all kinds of performance testing. Of course, for, for non-graphics related stuff, it's, it's the main tool, but even for graphics related stuff, it can tell you a lot, but it's, it's important to keep in mind that it's not the whole story. And the core animation instrument is also very useful, I think. Do you know very much about the, so there's an OpenGL ES instrument, and I, I don't do any OpenGL. And so I'm curious to know if, if that's ever useful, because I know, I know OpenGL is used, used internally, of course, for system drawing. Mm-hmm. So do you have any experience with that OpenGL ES instrument? I do I, not. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, uh, an application developer, so I don't, I don't get to spend a lot of time in OpenGL. So, uh, it's something that I would, that I would like to do, but in the abundance of free time that I have, I, would prefer to to focus and, and hone in on on my my current skills of of doing application development. Yeah, I know but, exactly the feeling. But yeah, Open OpenGL is is really cool. I know several other developers are really really big in OpenGL. Uh, in fact, a couple of a couple of my teammates at BlackPixel they know a lot about OpenGL, and I would love to be able to pick their brain and and know how OpenGL works uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Just. I would love to get some perspective on that, so we'll probably ask you after the show about who you would recommend to talk to us about OpenGL. Okay. So we we talked a little bit about CPU-bound performance issues. Are there other issues for, like, memory-bound applications? Yes. So another thing to watch out for when when you're doing performance tuning is the lovely feature that takes the user to the home screen, also known as as your application crashing. So when when we're talking (laughs) about... That's a feature, huh? Yes, it's a feature. It takes... Takes the user to the home screen, and, and and every app has it somewhere, right? <laughs> well, hopefully, the applications that I write don't have it, but I still haven't unlocked that feature yet. Uh, when, when we're talking about memory uh, memory issues, there's a broad spectrum of things we need to look out for. So there's there's a case where we're allocating too much memory, so we're hold, we're just holding on to way too much memory, and the system is going to give us a warning, then it's going to really give us a warning, and then it's going to kill us. So that's one issue. Another issue is leaking memory. So that is grabbing a reference to something and then not telling that object that it, it's free to go away. So not deallocating that object or releasing it properly and then losing the reference. So that memory is still allocated according to the system, but we don't hold any references to it. So that, that's a, that's a memory leak. And then a, a third issue uh, is not really a performance or a memory allocation issue, it's actually having a reference to deallocated memory. Uh, that's called uh, a zombie reference. Uh, a good example is, is collection views. Uh, a collection views delegate is an assigned property. So if the view controller for a collection view goes away and the collection view is still around doing stuff and it calls back the delegate, it's going to call what was called a zombie or an NS zombie. And that's basically trying to dereference junk memory. Uh, so there, there's three, those are three main issues. Uh, I guess I can talk about them in, in order. So the, the first one is, is all about memory allocation. Uh, that is just simply allocating too much memory. If you say are, are consuming a web service and the web service sends back megabytes of JSON or XML and you have to parse that, you would normally want to keep some of that memory so you can parse it and as you're doing that, the system is going to watch your allocation. And if your allocation grows way too fast to a certain point, it's going to send you a memory warning 
or maybe even just just kill the application in general. Uh, so that's that's the watchdog process. So Brandon, uh, do you have yes. a do you have a feel for how much memory you're allowed to have in an application for like iPad or iPhone? Is there a benchmark? <clears throat> I've heard, that, heard different things. That is a really good question. I get asked a lot, and the answer I give is I have no idea because <laughs> Apple will not give you that information. Uh, we we really shouldn't have to rely on that information. I know, I know some game developers, they, they kick and scream because they know exactly how much memory they have on, say, a console or just, say, a desktop computer, which is essentially infinite. But on, in terms of an iOS device, we have to remember that our application is not running by itself. It's running with a bunch of other applications on a resource-constrained device. So we have to be as stingy with memory as we can. So I'm, I'm not saying you can't, you can't allocate several megabytes and use it and then uh, release it later, but try to try to limit the amount of the amount of time you do that. So are there techniques then? Let's go back to the example where you import a whole bunch of JSON. Are there techniques then for processing that maybe a piece at a time or Well, first I would ask why is my data provider giving me megabytes of JSON? If possible, talk to your service side team and see if we can see if you can chunk that down into multiple requests. So that th- this gets into a lot of balancing and trying to make the right balance of okay, network network traffic is expensive, especially on on a an unreliable cell network, uh, especially if you're in San Francisco uh, around <laughs> the time of WWDC. So. Knowing that that making a bunch of requests is hard to do, but pulling down a ton of data is also not necessarily recommended. Figuring out that balance and working with your server team is is probably the best way to go. I can't really give you a good rule of thumb, but experiment and see what works well in your application. Yeah, it makes so sense. So, in, in in the cases where you don't have control over, you know, maybe it's not a server side thing. Maybe it's a large image file, audio file. Do you have any techniques for kind of managing memory at that point that you can share with us? So if, it, if it's something like uh, an image or uh, an audio file or something that, that you don't have to parse immediately, you can actually just stream that to disk. So as, as it's coming down, just take that, that NS data you have and append it to a file on disk. And then you can work with it later. Okay. So you, actually, put it, you, put it, you send it to disk, and that means that you don't need to have it in memory. Right. Of course, there are time, times when you do need that information in memory, like when you're actually going to use it. Yeah, um, that's true. What, what about that? So I, 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 what, you know, when you're, for example, playing an audio file, how, how might you deal with keeping memory usage low while you're playing the, the data in an audio file? Well, so if, if you're, that kind of stuff, you can, you're kind of streaming it off the disk and not loading the whole thing into memory, right? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, they're careful, right? There, there's, there's multiple things. I'm, I'm not a core audio expert. I've done just a very, very little bit. So, from what I understand, if like if you're streaming it from the internet, you basically give core audio a, bu- a buffer to use, and it uses that buffer uh, by itself. So, at in in those instances, the the Apple engineers are are doing the the hard work for you. Uh, but if if you're if you're trying to do something like uh, like parsing XML, um, I, I I say XML because XML, as as much of a pain in the butt parsing XML is, 
uh, streaming XML parsers are really nice. So you can actually get a chunk of XML, parse it right there, streaming, like use a streaming parser, and just continue parsing it that way. But if you're doing something like JSON, JSON's a little harder to parse uh, with the streaming parser. I know they exist, but I I personally haven't had a haven't had to use it because all of my JSON payloads have been relatively small. So yeah, I think if you're if you're needing to if your JSON file is so large that you're needing to process it in chunks to stream it, then you're probably going to have to work with your your server side guys to to get it into a chunky form because if, if there's you have to get to the end of each kind of chunk before you can process it which I guess is kind right. of the same with XML yeah well there there are a lot of ways to handle that and you can do the same thing with XML but I mean you can break it up so that you basically say this subset of the data that you're asking for is at this URL and then just take it out so it's not so big yeah. um, and then if you have an object that is so large that it's causing you problems you know at just one flat level then maybe you need to rethink the way you're structuring your data. Yeah, I normally, when I'm talking to clients about building, I, I guess I normally talk to enterprise clients, but when I'm talking to them about building a mobile thing, I normally encourage them to, the, the team that's building them the app to have some server-side kind of layer that, that they have control over so that they can format the API in a mobile-friendly way. So that means doing stuff like Chuck saying and also you know, maybe chunking up requests where it makes sense. If you're going to, mm. you know, call X and then call Y and then call Z, always the same way, then do that on the server side and just have one API call that chunks chunks that stuff up. Yeah, um, That's actually kind of a weird thing to talk about when we talk about performance tuning, but actually having some kind of server-side component that's in your control maybe lets you avoid having to do lots of this stuff on the device if you could just do it on the, on the server side instead. Yeah, and having built a lot of APIs, I mean... You know, there are a lot of ways that you can pare down to just give the the client exactly what it needs and no more. And uh, a lot of times, people just take their entire object or um, you know data set and they just convert the whole thing to JSON. Where in reality, you really only care about a handful of fields across the set of data or a handful of fields on just the one object that you've requested. So, I mean, there are definitely techniques for that. Have any of you guys used? kind of alternate data formats like um, binary JSON or protocol buffers or any of that stuff um, to, mm-hmm. to try and help with this? I mean, I, mean, I can imagine protobuffers are kind of designed to optimize this kind of stuff, so I imagine it would be good, but I have a feeling if you get to the point that you're needing to optimize that much, then that doesn't feel like the lowest hanging fruit in your performance tuning efforts, I think. Yeah. Right. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that while we are talking a lot about paring down data and, and making data payloads coming back across the wire or invisible wire smaller, we don't necessarily have to worry about that, I would say, 98% of the time. Because uh, modern devices, uh, when I say modern, uh, devices that are a couple years old are, are pretty fast and they have fairly large chunks of memory. So we don't have to worry about them as much as we did, say, if four or five years ago, but it's still an issue if we have a lot of data. So th- this this comes back to when, when, I, when I was talking earlier about the, the whole scientific process of performance tuning, let's make sure we have an issue first. So write your application, go ahead and develop the way you think it should be developed, and then go back and analyze it. Go back and look at, at your issues. That way you're not, you're not doing uh, something... Uh, 
that you, you might hear get thrown around uh, premature optimization. Mm-hmm. Premature optimization is the root of all evil. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, that, that's a that's a famous saying. Yeah, it, uh, Donald Knuth said that. Right. So I have another question, and that is um, about doing these requests. Network requests can sometimes take time. And so if, let's say, I tap uh, a row in my table view and uh, it needs to load some data about whatever thing I tapped, should I be making those calls before they tap that? In other words, when I get the list, you know, go and request as many of those as I can so that I have the information on my device? Or am I better off just making the request and telling the, the user, hang on, I'm getting that off the internet? That's a really good question. That, that really depends on the application. And it also depends on your designer. Uh, sometimes designers want, want all of the data available at any given time. Something I wouldn't recommend is spinning off a bunch of requests. Because if, if you get, say, a, a list of 20 items and you need to make 20 more calls to get more data and the user may look at one of them, that could be problematic. So when when I'm writing an application, I'm generally approaching it as, okay, I have a list of data. I just got it back from the service. It's been thrown into core data, so I'm, I'm working with it in core data. And to tap on an item, I go to the next view, and now I have spun off a new request. So if my server side is performant and then my local code is performant, the lag between having an empty view or hey, and a view that says, hey, I'm loading data, that may only be, it may be less than a second, but it could be a couple seconds. But ultimately, I, I like to have it to where I load my data for, one, for view A, which is my list, I tap on an item, and then I make my request. And then I put that, I usually put that data in a core data, so if they tap on it again, I can show them data and then make a request for, for getting updated data. Mm-hmm. And so then depending on how critical it is that the data is immediately up to date, you know, you, you might put some feedback in there that says, this is what I have on the device and I'm updating it as we speak kind of thing. Yes. One of the bigger points is, is what you're, I think the, the original, what we originally said was, you know, like uh, the, the root of all of this performance tuning is the user experience. And a lot of times it's, it's not that you know the, the way to improve the user experience isn't necessarily to improve the performance, but to improve the perceived performance, right? So, mm-hmm. show the user something and then fill it, fill in the details is going to feel faster than showing them all of the details, even if you're actually technically faster to show them all the details rather than doing it in two steps. Yeah. yeah. A common example is a list of uh, you have a list and each one has an image, so you you completely fill in the list and then you load in the images in the background and they fill in as the user scrolls. That's that one's really interesting as well because, um, so I, I think some people, some people's uh, instinct is to put like a spinner or something to indicate all the things that are loading. But I think I, I think I remember in reading in Apple Docs or something that, or in the Apple Style Guide or HID, that um, it's actually better to just leave like a placeholder, like that kind of dotted dotted square right. that isn't obviously loading, and just fill them in because otherwise it kind of highlights the fact that the, the there's a load of stuff that you're waiting for. So it makes the user feel like there's more stuff being loaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the placeholder is a good, pretty good pattern to do that do that with. Yeah, and and there there are multiple techniques for loading the data. Uh, so getting into like in depth pieces of 
of implementing some of something like that. Uh, when the user is scrolling, so say you have an NS URL connection, you spawn off your request uh, using the asynchronous part of NS URL connection. As you're scrolling, if you've configured your URL request, your URL connection by the default configuration when it attaches itself to the run loop, that d- the data that's coming back as you're scrolling is not going to get called back to the delegate because as soon as you start scrolling, your your run loop switches to a different mode. So depending on which mode you're in, you get different callbacks, and the system does different things. Mm-hmm. Does that does that all does that all make sense? My head just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what so, are the, what are the two different things? Uh, so so a, a great example of that is is say you have a table view and you have a bunch of images that you need to load. So when the table is just sitting there, the run loop is in a default mode. It's in the mode where it says, okay, anything you throw at me, I will respond and call back. That's uh, perform selector after delay, perform selector, all all of that stuff that gets attached to the run loop uh, will get called when the run loop is on is in the in that mode. I, I forget the Forget the details of what each mode is called, but I know that by default, everything will get called back. As soon as you start scrolling, it switches to a different mode. So it it ignores what well, didn't ignore, but it it queues up all network requests, uh, all network data that's coming back across the wire. So say you have uh, ten images that are loading. As you're scrolling, all ten of those requests may have come back by while the user user was scrolling but your application isn't going to know until they release. Then it gets hit. Then the run loop switches and all of those callbacks go back to the, the URL connection delegate. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm seeing that in the app I worked on. So we did throw a lot of stuff to the background thread, loading image or whatever, and you mm-hmm. scroll fast. And when you stop, you you instantly see the callback stuff come back on whatever's on the screen. So it kind yes. of shows up at the right time. Okay. Well, you don't want to be updating all the, the cells as the user is scrolling either. You want to wait till they're done anyway. Yeah. But it sounds like that's what the framework's doing for us. Is that right? The, the, the framework is doing it for you, but you can... So something I wouldn't recommend is attaching, is configuring your URL connection to run in all modes. There there may be a handful of, ca- of cases where you want to do that, but... Most of the time, you want to just have the default configuration of your of your URL connection, and then you can also take and take a an NS operation, create a run loop inside that operation and for that thread, and then attach it to that run loop, and have multiple run loops going. So you have one run loop in the background that is just in that common mode all the time, and then your main UI run loop. So there's there's a bunch of different ways to approach this problem. Ninety percent of the time, you're going to attach your URL connections to the to the main thread, and then do all your processing in the background on inside an NS operation or something. Okay, for those of us who are going to head to Google to look this stuff up, how would you search for this? NS run loop modes. Uh, okay, and then uh, also the documentation for NS URL connection is pretty good. That'll explain how it works, how to attach things to different run loops. Uh, if you want to look at code. A networking library that I use. It's not well known, uh, but it's called ES Networking. Uh, it's written by Doug Russell, uh, who is next colleague. And he wrote that, and he's a really, really smart guy. And if you want to see how to set up run loops 
and how to configure URL connections with extra run loops or on the main run loop. Check that out. It's on GitHub. Depending on what you're doing, there are easier ways to do it. For example, AF Networking has categories on image view that will automatically load the image in the background for yeah. you. So I have a random a random question that may not be related to this at all, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. So, and I, and I, this is also a challenge because it's uh, we're still under NDA for a lot of the iOS seven stuff. Um, but does the the change in the visual style in iOS seven? Do you guys think that's going to make things easier or harder from a performance point of view, or is it is that a, just a silly like an irrelevant uh, question? No, that's that's a really good question. So first, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much how much I'm yeah right <laughs> saying. Um, I've kind of felt so, like I almost shouldn't ask because it's so annoying trying to figure out like what was said during the keynote, what wasn't. Yeah, they did show off that visual style though. So yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, the style is definitely. So uh, so one one thing that I that I would say that I'm I'm pretty comfortable talking about because there there are multiple libraries popping up all over the place now on iOS six that have the slightly translucent views. So say you have a navigation bar and you want your content to scroll behind it. So it, it sort of masks it and, and adds the blur, sort of a, a frosted glass effect. So doing something like that is extremely processor-intensive. Trying to apply those effects while the user's scrolling, it is going to impact performance. One thing I know that in an upcoming version of, of iOS, the, the UI engineers who are doing all of that work are really, really smart. They're way smarter than I am. So they're going to perf- they're going to tune those things way better than I can. And they also have access to all of the all of the UI kit code. So And they have access to internal APIs as well and they can add internal APIs if they need to to, to help with, with that kind of performance tuning, right? Yeah. So it, it is going to impact performance. How much it, it remains to be seen. I guess we'll we'll find out when when iOS seven is is released to the wild. So that's interesting. I the only I I actually had like a, a way more naive view, which was just thinking because of it's now has this kind of uh, flat look and less um, less of the silly um, you know skeuomorphism and and gradients and all that stuff. That maybe that means that that you know the time the performance to render all that stuff will be quicker. But now that I think about it, really uh, with a a modern Phone rendering a gradient, rendering a you know rendering an image for a a, a a fake level look doesn't really make any difference anyway. So, so maybe it's going to be negative rather than positive. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think we're toward the end of our time. Are there any other questions? Or I had a question back when you you were talking about measuring performance and and you had background processes that you didn't want to interfere. Do you ever use uh, mock objects or step things out to help you isolate things? It really depends on the situation. In recent history, I really haven't had a need to. Mm-hmm. When when we're developing applications, uh, we we develop all the features first and get everything working, and then we and then at the end we we always we always try to have have uh, a good chunk of time so we can we can go in and do all the performance tuning. So when I should also I should also say when when you're doing performance tuning like this, if you have one particular issue, say it's a particular animation that is running running fairly slow and it's hard to reproduce, creating a 
a quick project to pull some of that code over and using mock objects and, and mock data can be useful. But try to try to test everything that you're doing when it comes to performance in a real world real world setting. So if you're testing your application just in, in a full end-to-end test, you're checking network data performance, so you're you're wanting to check to see if the server is responding in time and and if your if your payloads are, are too large. Doing that on a Wi-Fi connection isn't going to be testing a 4G or 3G connection. So turn on the network link conditioner. Uh, that can be found in the settings app uh, under developer if you have configured your app, your device for development. You also want to make sure that everything you're testing in terms of scrolling performance is something that you would see in the real world. So if you're testing a photo application, take some real photos. Use the, the large images you're going to be using and, and see if you need to, to go ahead and generate smaller sizes if, if necessary so you don't have a lot of issues uh, when you're scrolling. Does that, does that make sense? Sure. We mentioned a very early on in the call battery life. That seems that's like a challenging thing to, to kind of, in, in that kind of experiment thing of like uh, measure something and then make a change and then measure it again, how does that work with battery life? Presumably you're not going to you know, run the app for five hours and see how much battery it uses up. What's, what's a good rule of thumb for, for optimizing for that kind of stuff? So with, with battery life, there's actually an instrument for doing for you looking at power usage. So if you, if you have your device configured for battery life or configured for uh, development, you can actually go in and turn on uh, power usage logging. That's so cool. I as, didn't know that was there. As soon as you turn that on, the the device is going to track every event that happens that could affect battery. So uh, it's going to detect when the screen comes on and off. It's going to detect when when some of the chips fire on or turn on and, and get turned off. So it's going to log everything that's happening and every event that is triggered by an application. So a push notification comes down, uh, Tweetbot will come to the fore- foreground, do a little bit of processing, and then go back down and show you. It'll show you the the notification. So when when you do all of that, and you're using your application as you would in a real world scenario, you can actually see how push notifications will impact battery life. You, if you're using a game, if you're developing a game, while you're playing the game, have your power logging turned on. You can see what the system is going to estimate as to how much power you're actually using. So if all of the radios are turned on, so GPS, Wi-Fi, uh, you've got a processor intensive thing, you might have like a, a 10 out of 10 saying your, your battery is going to die in an hour. Or wow. if, if you're doing something like uh, Tweetbot or just looking at Twitter or just random web surfing, it could be a 2 out of 10, which means it could die in... Uh, 10 or 11 hours. All of that information is in the Apple documentation and I also think it was talked about in some of the WWDC videos uh, from last year or the year before. So watch the power logging videos and uh, also if, if you wanted a, a handy resource, uh, go pick up a copy of my book. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I guess that the, like one of the main things that's going to one of the main culprits is going to be firing up those those radios, right? Like if you're constantly checking GPS or if you're constantly making network calls, then it's going to 
it's going to um, kind of drain drain the battery super fast. Yeah. So so something something that's sort of interesting and maybe a little it, when you think about it, it makes sense. So so you have you have a number of different types of radios in your in your device. So you have a Wi-Fi radio, you have a 3G or cell radio. The edge radio takes the least amount of power, but it's the long. It's going to be on the longest as it's transferring data at a very slow rate. The 3G radio takes more power, and the Wi-Fi radio takes the most power. But if you compare Wi-Fi and 3G, since Wi-Fi is a higher speed, if you're on a high-speed internet connection and you're you're going over Wi-Fi, a single connection making the the round trip and getting all the data going from power up the chip to power down is actually taking less power than a 3G chip who would be doing the same thing. And that, that's on the old 3G network. I'm not sure about the, the whole LTE thing. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't done any reading on, on how much power those, those chips use. That's but, really interesting. But knowing how much power the chip uses versus how long it's going to be on to do data transfer is going to impact battery life. And presumably that's all stuff that the operating system kind of has the smarts built in to, to handle. We don't we don't need to do anything with that explicitly right. in our code, right? Right. Yeah. That's cool. I never I never thought about that before. Do you guys want to talk about the um, kind of profiling CPU bound stuff? Like, um, do we want to do that, or do we do we want to go to the picks? I'm I'm easy either way. Well, it's it's interesting to me because we talked about performance profiling in terms of, of scrolling performance, which is sort of an animation or graphics area. But I've actually had had to do just as much work on things that are just CPU-bound operations. Not not graphics, but just things the app is doing, jobs the app is doing. So mm-hmm. I think that might be useful. Yeah, yeah let's go and talk stuff, about it for a minute. And that stuff relates to the scrolling stuff as well, because if, if you're doing some kind of CPU intensive operation as the scroll's going on, then it's going to give you a a, judge, a jittery scroll, right? So the two right. the two are kind of related. You need to know about one in order to fix the other sometimes. Yeah, and if you're pegging your CPU, your battery life's not going to be too good either. That's, That's true. true. <laughs> so so the the moral of the story is everything impacts everything. <laughs> but so so I mean everything everything is going to impact the user experience. From from battery life to scroll performance to my goodness, why is my iPhone really really hot? So so stuff like that. Uh, when when we're talking about time profiling and and CPU bound bound things, there there are a number of things that we can do to make sure that that we're we're using the CPU as as effectively as possible. So in in terms of of making sure that we have a responsive UI offload as not not offload as much as you can to the background, but but where it makes sense, do stuff in the background. Uh, GCD is is amazing for doing that. The downside to using something like GCD is you have no control over how many threads are going to be spawned up by GCD. So next thing, so you start off uh, a couple of parse operations and and group those together in say a GCD a dispatch group. And then you look at your application while debugging, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I have 42 threads going. That could impact performance because the operating system is having to bounce between 42 different threads and give and having to do a lot of context switching. So that could uh, impact performance. So I think um, one thing to mention in that case is 
NS operation queue and NS operation, which is a higher level API built on GCD. Yes. And maybe you could say a little about that. Yeah, so uh, using NS operation, uh, I can't think of an application that I've developed recently that hasn't used NS operation. It's a really simple API. The great thing about NS operation is, is as you create an operation and throw it into an operation queue, if you don't need that operation anymore, you can cancel it. Compared to something in GCD, where you you set it, send it off to GCD and it's going to get done, it may or may you may not be able to cancel it. If you can, there's a lot of work that has to be done. So so using NS operation uh, is your first thing to do when when you're wanting to do any type of parsing in the background, for example. Uh, that's that's the number one thing that I've done in in applications that I've that I've help to work on is is we create operations when we're doing parsing. So we get JSON back, then we parse it in the background, throw it in core data in the background, and then all then our UI gets updates from core data in on the main thread. I think another <clears throat> another nice thing about NS operation and NS operation queue that you mentioned was a limitation of GCD is that NS operation queue will let you set the number of operations that run concurrently. Yes. So you can tell it you only want you know two two things to happen at the same time or or whatever, uh, and in yes. fact you can even make that scale based on the number of cores in the device or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can throttle it down if you're if you really need you know the CPU for one thing you can throttle down another thing that's happening so that it doesn't take up so much time. It's gonna, quite a nice API. I'm going to jump in and clarify something for new people. GCD is Grand Central Dis- Dispatch. Yeah, so it's an API introduced in uh, iOS 4, I believe, that um, allows you to, well, it's, it's, that's a topic for uh, yeah. an entire show, but it's a, <laughs> yes, it, it, is. it makes, makes it easier to do multi-processing, so essentially multi-threaded uh, programming. And if you, if you never worked with GCD before, uh, go read about NS operation. Uh, NS operation is, is a much easier API to work with. So you would create an operation uh, or actually you would subclass op- an operation, or you can create an operation and give it a block, and then send that operation to an operation queue, and that work will get done. And then you will, you can also configure it to notify, notify you when, when that operation is complete. So you can give it a, a completion block, and, and various, various other things. But NS operation queue will manage everything in the background for you. So we don't really have to worry about, uh, creating threads, we still have to worry about things like, are these two operations accessing and mutating the same array? Because NS array is not thread safe. So we have to worry about things like that. But in general, creating, creating and managing threads, which used to be a huge pain, is now a lot simpler. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Thanks for coming, Brandon. It's been a terrific uh, discussion. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, yeah great stuff. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, um, Jane, why don't you start us off with picks this week? So we talked a little bit about uh, memory mapping. I have a, a pick that's a, a POSIX uh, file system call called MMAP, and this really saved our bacon when I was, we were creating a desktop app and bringing it to the iPad. Uh, this will allow you, to, if you have a large audio file that you have to keep in memory and play periodically, um, so if you're actually the, the people that actually have to do the streaming, you can actually um, save the file or 
save the memory to a file and access it um, through MMAP, which allows you to keep uh, less memory actually uh, active, but still um, it's fast enough with a with iPad, you know, iOS solid state devices. So it's uh, really useful and keep your memory profile and not get crashed. So that's my pick, MMAP. You stole my pick, James. Oh no, <laughs> no. I'll make, I, a, I, I mean, I'll make you do one. I actually no. I actually have something to add to that. That really was going to be my pick, but um, NS Data, NS Data actually has support for for uh, mapping files. It's using MMAP internally, but um, it's an Objective C API to do the same thing. Uh, so when you cr- when you create an NS Data object with a file, you can pass in an option to tell it to to, to map that file. And and what that really means is is that when you the NS data object looks like a regular NS data object with bytes you can read using all the regular methods, but it's actually only pulling in data from the disk when you ask for that particular chunk of data, that piece of data, instead of reading the entire file. But it takes care of, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an objective C API, whereas MMAP is a low level C API that leaves you responsible for freeing up that map memory when you're done and, and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Nice. Good stuff. Awesome. Andrew, did you have any other picks? Yeah, I've actually got um, a fallback pick and then and then one more. So my first pick is Apple Doc. Uh, maybe this has been picked before, but I actually started using it for the first time yesterday. Seriously, and uh, Apple Doc is a is a program that was written by a guy whose name I probably can't say right, but he goes by Gentle Bytes. That's his company, and it's a it's a program that will read specially formatted. Uh, Java doc style comments in your code and generate documentation that's exactly in the same style as Apple's documentation. And it will even create uh, documentation sets that can be installed in Xcode so that you can read them in the regular Xcode documentation viewer. Uh, it also, CocoaPods uses this. So there's, well, CocoaPods doesn't use it exactly. There's a, there's a website called CocoaDocs.org um, that, that somebody Wrote that will, that goes through CocoaPods and automatically generates Apple Doc documentation if the if the comments are there and so so that's actually a way you can get documentation for a lot of CocoaPods that are out there like AF networking. Um, so I'm I'm actually working on adding this to my open source stuff now. It's uh, really easy to use and there's also um, a, a blog post about this by Coconetics that I'm going to link to that just talks a little more about how to use Apple Doc because ironically, as good as Apple Doc is, its documentation is almost non-existent. So it's left up to third parties. And then the other pick I had was a blog post by Will Shipley called Pimp My Code. He does this regular series called Pimp My Code, or at least he used to, um, that I think is relevant to today where he talks about a, a bad performance problem and, and even a crash that he had in an application and how he solved it and I think it's really interesting. So he, he ended up using um, some of the NS data stuff I was just talking about for, for mapped reading. And, and actually, there's another option where you can do uncached reading, which I'll leave to the blog post. But Awesome. Pete, what are your picks? Okay. Uh, I have quite, well, I have four picks, but I will be fast. First pick is probably something someone's picked before, but the WWDC videos. So particularly for stuff around performance tuning, I found watching those videos really really helpful uh, in explaining some of the stuff particularly the stuff around kind of animation and how to how to core animation and how to optimize your UI and off-screen rendering and all that stuff we talked about at the beginning of the show 
My second pick is um, is the idea of having a device lab. So that sounds really fancy, but um, really what I'm talking about is having some physical devices that you're testing with and, and being quite conscious of what devices you want to support. So if you want your app to work with an acceptably on an iPad one, you need to get an iPad one and play with it. Um, I learned this the hard way when we only started testing our app on an iPad one halfway through our project and it ran like a dog because, um, you know, there's not much memory and the process is pretty weak and all the rest of it. So having physical devices and, and choosing, consciously choosing which devices you're going to support is another pick of mine. Third pick is Instapaper, totally unrelated to um, this topic, but I just used it three times today and realized how much I still love that, that app. It's, it's like a read later thing, so you can install a little bookmarklet on your phone and also on your browser, and when someone sends you a cool link to an interesting blog post about performance tuning or whatever, you um, press a button and it uh, magically gets sent to your phone and to your Kindle so you can read it later on. And I, I, I use it all I use it all the time. Yeah, me too. Super awesome, and it's like it's one of those things that's so awesome. It kind of you, you kind of don't even notice how awesome it is because it just works and gets out of your way. Uh, and then my third pick is the network link conditioner. We we mentioned this, and I think we've talked about this on previous shows, but it's kind of one of those little hidden gems of OSX that people don't know about, um, or some people don't know about. It's um, it's a way for you to simulate poor network conditions. So if you're if you're wanting to reproduce, if you're wanting to do this kind of experimentation thing and um, and uh, consistently reproduce being on an edge network, then Network Link Conditioner is a great way to do that. And that's it. Awesome. I, can I can I add one thing to Pete's picks? Yeah, go ahead. So on the WWDC sessions, there are three from from last year. Uh, so 2012 WWDC session 238. And session 242 are full, they're both performance, uh, sessions and they're full of good stuff related to what we talked about today. And there's one more that I don't actually have handy, but, uh, but anyway, I learned a whole, whole lot from those. And, and one of those, one of those is about memory and the other one's about core animation. So I don't know if we can link directly to WWDC presentations because they're behind a, a login. We can link to them. It's just you aren't, you know, someone's not going to be able to get to them unless they're they're logged into the the now functional developer portal. Yeah, I got yeah. an email saying it works. <laughs> Happy things. All right, Rod, what are your picks? All right, my first pick is uh, called Formatter Kit. Kit, yet another library from the Matt Thompson. It's a library for formatting strings into various things, so the format addresses, arrays, locations, all kinds of things. So pretty useful. And my second pick is a article that I found called The Mathematical Hacker that talks about the importance of mathematics to programmers and how we've kind of uh, ignored mathematics for a while. And one of the examples I get, he gave that I thought was very interesting is we talked about earlier how um, Fibonacci and factorial is typically done in a recursive fashion. But he gives a formula in this article that shows how to calculate it in constant time. And I had no idea it was possible. So that's, that was interesting. Nice. So uh, I've got a couple of picks that I'm going to share. Um, the first one is if you're looking at uh, project management software, um, I really like Pivotal Tracker, and so I'm going to pick them. But uh, one one issue that I've had with it is that uh, since they went paid, you can't add more than like one person to a project, which is kind of silly. Um, so I've I've uh, switched over unless the client wants to pay for 
Pivotal Tracker, I've switched over to Redmine, uh, which is a Ruby on Rails application. It's a web uh, project management software, and it, it's pretty good. So uh, that that's my other pick is uh, Redmine. Brandon, what are your picks? Okay, so I've got a, a few picks. The, the first first pick I have is uh, Xcode and Instruments. We can't do our jobs without Xcode and Instruments. So, yeah, I mean, I really can't say much more than that. The next pick I have is because the documentation viewer in the current shipping version of Xcode is pretty terrible. So I use uh, an application called Dash. Uh, it's available in the Mac App Store, and it lets you view documentation for uh, UIKit or Cocoa, AppKit, I mean, all of the Apple documentation, plus Java Docs, uh, Ruby documentation, PHP documentation, Python documentation. It, it ships with a ton of different types of platforms, so you can read the documentations from there. And then the, the next pick that I have is going to be a little self-serving because Blackfix will develop it, but that's Kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope is a diff utility, and I can't think of a day where I haven't used Kaleidoscope to diff and merge things as I'm developing during the day. Uh, it, it's To me, it's much more user-friendly than, than file merge and even the uh, command line uh, diff utility. Uh, you, can, you can check it out. See, the last one is sort of an obscure thing, and it has to do with debugging. And uh, at WWDC this year, I spent some time in the labs talking with the LLDB engineers about using their Python hooks. So writing Python scripts to have custom LLDB commands or even automating some of your debugging using Python. Awesome. So uh, checking, checking those out is, is great. Uh, the documentation is a little light, but all the source code for, for the Python stuff is actually in Xcode. So you can check it out and, and poke around and, and see how much you can break. Cool. All right. Well, it's been an awesome show. And, and thanks for coming again, Brandon. It, it really, uh, I feel smarter. I'll just say that. Well, I, I spent, I spent a lot of time, uh, researching these things. And anytime I can, I can impart some of this, some of this knowledge and also, uh, be asked interesting questions to, to make sure I know what I'm talking about and also learn from, from other people so I can just add to this this body of knowledge is, is great. Awesome. All right, well, we'll wrap up the show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming. We'll catch you all next week.